I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today's a big day for me because this will be the concluding episode of season two of Psychoactive, which means we've put out 80 episodes since the summer of 2021, plus a whole bunch of bonus episodes. And so I thought this would be a good time to really take the opportunity, um, because I'm not sure if and when Psychoactive will be returning and in what form, to thank a number of people. Let me start with Darren Aronofsky. Many of you know him as the famous movie director. Um, he and I met about 20 years ago. We were introduced by a fellow named Ganga White, who took each of us, not together, separately, on our first ayahuasca experience. But Darren emailed me back in June of 2020 and suggested the idea of my hosting a podcast on psychedelics, actually, he thought. And my response to him was, I'd actually rather do one on all drugs. And he said, let's do it. So first, Darren, thank you ever so much for initiating this project and for having the confidence and the faith in me to make this happen. And then next, let me thank the producers who have put in the most time and effort. Recently, that has been Noam Osband at Protozoa and Josh Thane at iHeart. And then their predecessors who got this going, Katja Kumkova at Protozoa and Benjamin Kubrick. Um, also at Protozoa, I mean, at the top of the list, Dylan Golden, my key collaborator over there, but also Ari Handel and Elizabeth Gieses and Avivit Bar-Yosef and Eric Watson. And over at iHeart, 
there's Alex Williams and Matthew Frederick, and of course, the head of the whole enterprise, uh, uh, Bob Pittman. And of course, Robert Beatty, who came up with a wonderful logo for Psychoactive. So thanks to all of you. It's been wonderful working with this team. And I apologize to those whose names I've forgotten who are working more behind the scenes on all of this. But what I can tell you is the levels of professionalism and time and commitment and good times with the folks at Protozoa and iHeart, the co-producers of Psychoactive, has just made this whole experience a real pleasure. Next, I want to thank you the listeners. Now, of course, I don't know exactly who all of you are. Uh, so some of you do tell me, but I can tell you this about the data that we collect. Most of the listeners, maybe 70% have been in the United States, but there have been listeners in over 170 countries and territories around the world. So the audience truly is global. And I want to thank especially those of you who are listening in countries with fairly oppressive governments, where these sorts of conversations that we have on Psychoactive would not be so well tolerated in your own countries. I hope these conversations have been a source of inspiration and enlightenment uh, for all of you. Now, as I said, I'm not sure what the next incarnation of Psychoactive will be or when. I am going to take a break for a while at least, but I would welcome your feedback. So contact me uh, through Instagram or other social media or email me directly at ethan at nadelman.net. That's ethan at nadelman.net. I can't promise to get back to you, but I always enjoy getting the feedback, not just the positive, you know, but also the negative and critical ideas for the future. Please keep posting your comments, uh, whether it's on iHeart or Google or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. The episodes will remain up for the foreseeable future uh, on all of the platforms. So please keep listening. And so with this, let me launch into episode number 80. And for number this one, I decided to ask somebody who's been a longtime ally and friend of mine. Uh, his name is Steve Rolls. Uh, he's based in the UK. He's British. He has been the senior policy analyst at the British Drug Policy Reform Organization, Transform, almost since its inception, since that organization was founded by Danny Kushlick in the mid-1990s. So he's been there for 25 years. He's widely regarded, uh, not just as an expert in the UK, but perhaps as the single most knowledgeable person when it comes to thinking about the legal regulation of drugs. I mean, that means that he's been a consultant to governments from Canada, Germany, Luxembourg, Jamaica, Malta, Mexico, uh, Uruguay, really almost every place except the U.S. when it comes to legalizing cannabis. It means he's been a recent advisor to the Petro government in Colombia on their proposals for legalizing coca or cocaine. He's been dealing with the Dutch on the issues of legally regulating MDMA. Uh, so, Steve. Thank you ever so much for joining me on the last episode of season two of Psychoactive. That's my pleasure, Ethan. It's great to be here. Well, so we have so much to talk about from models of legalization to the actual realities of legalization. But let me just begin um, by by asking you, I mean, you know, I think some of our listeners will know I've been involved in this issue since the late 1980s. Now, Steve, you jump into this about a decade later in the mid to late 1990s. Uh, but when you look at this evolution um, in the 25 years you've been in in involved in this, what most jumps out at you? 
Well, I mean, I guess like like you, Ethan, it's been a a remarkable, fascinating journey because what what started as you know discussions amongst reform advocates like us has moved from the sort of theoretical space into the real world and things which were seen as outrageous, sort of extreme heretical views um, when when we started are now very much mainstream political views and supported by a majority of the public. Um, and, you know, they are happening on the ground on, on every continent on earth. So things which were impossible, not not even 25 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know, if you think about it, Colorado and Washington and Uruguay, that, that all happened in 2012. So that was only just really mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Um, and before that, it was just still all theoretical. It was things that we were hoping for. I mean, there were some things happening with medical cannabis and so on. But when you get into the, the non-medical recreational drug uh, legalization regulation, it's really very much, you know, modern history. Um, and so f- for a long time, we were, you know, making the case, we were writing our reports, we were developing proposals, um, we were advocating, we were trying to change the framing of the debate and try and influence key political discourses in the media and in in, in in professional forums and in political forums. And sometimes it didn't feel like we were getting anywhere. Um, but clearly we were because at some point a threshold was passed and reform became not just a possibility, but a, a, a reality. And, and since those, since 2012, 2013, there's been a kind of um, cascading sort of domino effect uh, and and you know from from two two states in the U.S. to now 21 from from just Uruguay, we're seeing cannabis reforms for, for non-medical cannabis on ev- on every continent now, except maybe the Arctic. Well, and 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 we're seeing as you've already said, we're seeing the debate move beyond cannabis into psychedelics and and uh, cocaine and coca and uh, MDMA and other stimulants and other drugs. And so the the things that we you know the things that we have been advocating all of this time are becoming a reality and that is both interesting and and fascinating from historical view but also you know satisfying from professional view to sort of things that we were convinced that we were right but everyone was telling us we were mad it turns out that actually we were right because we've been vindicated by history and you know the evidence is is coming in and showing showing that we were what we were saying was essentially right and you know here we are We're, we're, we're still a long way to go but i feel yeah satisfied that, that that we haven't yeah. you know we haven't we, we weren't just some cranky kind of tinfoil hat nutters and heretics and you know history we are on the right side of history mm-hmm. no i mean steve i'll tell you part of what kept me going all those decades of being involved in the advocacy and you know when people would think this was just a quixotic enterprise was the sense that we were right in policy terms we were right from a justice perspective we were right from a perspectives of individual and broader morality and that it just seemed inevitable that somehow this but that on some level this bubble of a kind of um prohibitionist policy, the notion that you could somehow control global illicit commodities markets through policies of repression was somehow going to work. Um, But I want to ask you this, you know, I've oftentimes made the point that if you ask the question, how and why was it that the United States, which for almost a century, really from the early 20th century until 
basically the second term of the Obama administration, really was the global champion of the war on drugs, right? Exporting and modeling and coercing other governments to adopt, you know, fairly punitive prohibitionist policies. How was it that we nonetheless became the leader when it came to the legal regulation of cannabis? And I've answered that question in the U.S. context by saying it really goes back to medical marijuana. It goes back to that first medical marijuana ballot initiative victory in California in 1996. It was the one that afforded the first opportunity to bring marijuana markets above ground with the medical marijuana dispensaries. It was the one that gave people an opportunity to feel like what regulating marijuana would be like, right? And it helped, you know, in, in every sense, transform that dialogue in a way that opened up the door, shifted public opinion, shifted government thinking to imagining a world in which the legalization of marijuana, not just for medicinal purposes, but more broadly for all adults was possible. But the question is, for you in the UK and looking at this globally, to what extent was that the model elsewhere first? Secondly, to what extent was what happened in the U.S. kind of the inspiration or the instigation without which reform would not have happened elsewhere? because we always look at the Dutch coffee shop system as being you know, one of the actually pre-models to the U.S. medical marijuana model. And to what extent to, has this happened in some countries actually uh, totally independently of medical marijuana being the stepping stone? I mean, it's, that's a great question. Um, I, 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 there's certainly, um, I, I think the fact that the U.S., for the reasons you've, 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 you've touched on, the fact that the U.S., did go first, significantly went first. I mean, I don't want to, uh, you know, erase Uruguay from history here because Uruguay was the first member state and kind of happened around the same time as uh, Colorado and Washington. But uh, well, sort of, right? Because in a way, Uruguay legalizes is the end of 2013, so a year after all, after Colorado sure. and Washington. In fact, I sometimes wondered whether or not Uruguay would have happened in 2013 if Colorado and Washington had not gone forward. Sure, in but the process was unfolding from about 2011, and there were bills being tabled, and it was a very active public debate, mm -hmm. and there were expert consultations going on in 2011, 2012 that Transform and myself and others. Um, were, were involved in. But I think the thing that was very significant in terms of the US for the global debate was really what you say. I mean, the fact that the US had been the kind of drug war sort of bully of the world for, for all these decades, going all the way back to, you know, um, the, the, the drafting of the, the, you know, UN single convention in the 40s and 50s and Harry Ainsling and all, the, all that ghastly history. Um, the fact that they then did become these world leaders in, in the cannabis legalization regulation, it did create space for the debate to blossom elsewhere in the world, just because of the, the US's hegemonic role in geopolitics generally and in drug policy specifically. Um, they kind of lost their authority to bully other countries on cannabis regulation when US states started legalizing. And, uh, you know, when, when the US does stuff, it becomes okay to talk about it in other places in the world. And you can look at other things like uh, equal marriage, for example. When the equal marriage stuff happened under Obama in the US, suddenly that debate, which had been completely off the table, really, uh, in the UK, suddenly that debate opened up. And within a year or two, we'd, we'd, we'd uh, legalized equal marriage as well, um, just because it sort of somehow made it okay uh, to talk about it, kind of normalize the debate. So what happened in the US has been immensely important. 
they've you know the 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 models that have been adopted have been quite different in many of the states so there is also this interesting laboratory of change in the US that you have all these different models and we can look at what's working and what's not working. Um, and other countries have looked at that and they've looked at the successes and failings of, of uh, US legalization and learn from it and develop that and move, move forward. But I think the political power of the US doing something, even though it didn't happen at a federal level, it still created a political environment in which it became okay for other countries and other political uh, forums to, to start discussing this. And it became more difficult for the US to sort of try and stomp on other uh, reformers. Because you go back a few years before Colorado and Washington, and the US was, you know, giving uh, the Dutch a hard time about the coffee shops for decades. And then suddenly the US is doing it themselves. And it's kind of like, wow, that's that's a real change. And I suspect the things that are happening with psychedelics, with magic mushrooms and uh, psychedelic plants in Oregon and Colorado and elsewhere and things that are happening with Kratom and so on. I think that will probably help open up the debate for psychedelic regulation around the world as well, because it sort of just becomes okay to talk about it. The US, their historical their mm -hmm. historical position, their hegemonic position in geopolitics, it just creates a sort of safe space for other uh, nation states to engage in those debates, which just simply wasn't there before. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes sense. But I'll tell you, it's funny when you, we talk about Uruguay, right? Um, you know, when when President Mujica in Uruguay sort of proposed this, and as you said, there had been conversations going on, and folks in the U.S. had been engaging, and then uh, you have you know not just Transform, but also IDPC, International Drug Policy Consortium. So there were conversations happening. Um, but what I oftentimes think about Uruguay is that. It was a country where the medical marijuana thing had not really developed separately in the way it had in the U.S., right? So the U.S. opening on medical marijuana, you know, beginning in 96, and then Colorado and Washington obviously opened up space. But Uruguay was an example of a place which moved forward without having ever done that intermediate medical marijuana step, as far as I know. Yeah, that's true. I think right? I think that... The one of the differences between um, reform in Latin America and in Europe and North America is that the key driver um, of the reform narrative in Latin America has generally been security issues. So it's much been, more been about the cartels and violence and insecurity. Um, and President Mujica of Uruguay, his, his sort of discourse around the, the need for uh, cannabis reform, but his discourse was very much around security. I mean, he didn't want to see what he called the Colombianization of Uruguay. He didn't want to see Uruguay become a kind of, you know, move towards sort of narco state type uh, status. So he drove forward. I mean, you know, how much organized crime activity was involved in the domestic cannabis industry in Uruguay is moot, but that, that was still his driving force rather than um, you know, economic opportunities or social justice or public health. I mean, those things all came into it. But the driver and the driver, I, I, I think, similarly for the coca cocaine regulation debate in Colombia now under Petro is is very similar. It's it's driven not by, you know, an, the overdose crisis or by, uh, over, an, you know, mass incarceration and social justice stuff. It's driven more by issues around security and cartel activity and undermining of institutions and, and uh, you know, violence. So that dynamic is all now beginning to unravel. You know, as, as the global south is becoming uh, more potent politically, um, more confident on the geopolitical stage, um, more willing to stand up to the US uh, and, and some of the kind of 
hegemonic powers of the of the global north we're seeing a great a, a lot more confidence um in those countries like colombia you know and and, and like uruguay to say no we're not we're not going to play this game anymore we're going to we're going to plow our own furrow and do our own thing because the war on drugs just has not worked for us we've been fighting your war on drugs for generations and all it's brought to us is misery and degradation and, and, and violence and death. And we're, we're just not going to do it anymore. Let me stop you right there, because before I, I want to go back to the sure. Uruguay thing and, and some of the Latin American context. And I both want to, although I agree with most of what you said, I do want to challenge you on a few things and also provide some context for our audience. So when we're talking about the former president of Uruguay, President yeah. Mujica, you know, he was an old leftist guerrilla, Tupamaro guerrillas back in the 70s or whatever, who became this one-term president. Part of what made him successful, of course, was that Uruguay, they never had more than 40% of the public supporting the legalization yep. of cannabis. But they had a leadership, as you pointed out, by President Mujica and a very strong tradition of party discipline, which enabled this to happen for Uruguay to pass a law legalizing cannabis a year after Colorado and Washington had done it. Now, you talk about securitization. I think there the big issue was that Uruguay was importing most of its cannabis from, I think, Paraguay, Sorry. which is the leading producer of cannabis um, in, in the southern part of South America, and where organized crime is inevitably involved. But uh, just to complicate it a bit, I mean, I think if we look, obviously, in talking about the bigger issues around coca, cocaine, or heroin, opium, and other places, security is a big issue. But if you look elsewhere in Latin America, I remember we were perpetually frustrated at, you know, more and more people, Latin American, especially Latin American elites, understood the extent to which U.S.-inspired, you know, drug war policies, drug war pressures, prohibitionist frameworks were absolutely a disaster for their country, sort of like, you know, America during alcohol prohibition times 50 or times 100 in terms of creating, you know, violence, crime, corruption, all that sort of stuff. But we also saw virtually nothing in the way of progress on that front in response to the security issue. And where the progress did happen in recent years, for example, in countries like uh, Colombia or in Mexico or even elsewhere, it was typically medical marijuana sort of sticking its nose under the tent, right? In Mexico and Colombia, you have these mothers, these parents of, you know, of infants and children of that terrible Dravet syndrome, that epileptic mm -hmm. syndrome that, you know, where cannabis is the only thing that really helps to reduce seizures. And they become this kind of inspirational force in a way somewhat similar to what happened in the United States. So it seems that even in that Latin American context where security is such a major issue and organized crime and the violence and, and corruption is such a major issue that nonetheless, apart from Uruguay, it did seem like medical marijuana was the key element sort of opening things up. Yeah, I think I, 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 think I agree with you on that. I, I, med, medical cannabis has, you know, it, as you say, it does help normalize um, the concept of a regulated cannabis market. And it does kind of detoxify the idea of cannabis as this as this as deadly this deadly drug in the in the public perception and that certainly has played out um in most countries and it's happening in in Europe now um i think the thing with uruguay i mean one of the things is that cannabis was never really criminalized in uruguay anyway. in fact drugs possession generally was never criminalized in uruguay so it the, the, Right. Well, and as we forget, and we talk about Portugal, at, you know, with its decrim model that it brought in about 20 yep. years ago, and we think of them as the pioneer, and in many respects they were, but from a legal perspective, Uruguay already had something of the Portugal model for decades yes, beforehand. Yes, yes. Right? And they, they, were, they were clearly 
um, quite pragmatic. I mean, I actually, uh, I, I met Mujica when we were working there because it, it's a quite a small country. So you, your access to the politicians is, is a lot easier than if you, you're in, in a huge country like the US, you can just get to meet the president. And so we, we went and met him and it was quite an uh, amusing meeting. Um, but I, I sort of asked him, I said, like, are you worried about, you know, um, uh, America breathing down your neck and giving you heat for legalizing cannabis? I mean, are they going to, are you worried they're going to come down on you hard? And he was like, he was like, look, I was imprisoned down a well for three years and uh, uh, tortured. Um, I don't, <laughs> he basically said, I don't give a shit about the US. And and it, it was, it was just so refreshing to see just someone literally doing leadership because it wasn't just cannabis. I mean, this is a guy who, um, also legalized gay marriage and uh, abortion, which like cannabis, none of them had a popular mandate. He just thought it, they were the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, he, he, he got away with it because the public respected his leadership, even though they didn't, he didn't have a popular mandate for any of those issues. But, you know, that was just genuine leadership. I mean, that's true, Steve. But, you know, I'll also say, you know, they had, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, he had a right hand guy, uh, Diego, Diego yes. Canepa, I think, who was, you know, one of our key liaisons. Yep. And I remember talking with him uh, when he had come to the US. And I think some of the story can be told now. But they were, to some extent, concerned how the US respond because the US in the past had been so, you know, beating up on Canada if they talked about doing harm reduction or beating up on Australia yeah. if they thought if they were going to, you know, or, you know, Netherlands or whatever country wanted to move forward. And what he told me was that there had been a discussion with folks in the White House and he he wasn't precise who it was. I speculated that it might have been Vice President Biden, but who had essentially said at that point that, listen, um, so long as this is entirely a domestic issue in Uruguay, so long as you're not exporting this stuff to the U.S., so long as you're not talking about legalizing drugs other than cannabis, then we don't have to see this as affecting American national security or other political interests whatsoever. In other words, it was a kind of tacit, qualified green light to saying, we're not going to respond to you the way we have in the past. And I think the U.S. ambassador, you know, followed that yeah. line. And then there was a very, another pivotal moment. There was an assistant secretary of state for international narcotics, international uh, INL, the State Department Narcotics and Law Enforcement Office. And he was a highly respected diplomat, William yes. Brownfield. And he was something of an old drug warrior, but he had been a very respected former ambassador to Chile and Venezuela, Colombia. He'd become the head of the Narcotics and Law Enforcement Office in 2011. Then Uruguay and Washington legalized in 2012. And the Obama administration is in a bind. Like, what do they do about Washington and Colorado? This is in clear violation of the federal law, in clear violation of the 1970 Controlled Substance Act, in clear violation of the UN conventions. And they kind of toss and turn. And finally, in, I think, think the summer or fall of 2013 come out with what becomes known as the quote unquote brownfield doctrine. And that brownfield doctrine essentially reverses, um, you know, almost a century of U.S. kind of mono-prohibitionist policy. It basically says we are no longer going to be intolerant of diversity. We are going to be open to other possibilities and debates, so long as countries keep collaborating on the basic efforts to crack down around drug-related organized crime and trafficking and all this sort of stuff, right? So, I mean, as an American, I saw that you know, Colorado and Washington lead to the Obama administration have to rethink how they're going to have to deal with this domestically. And that inevitably leads to some rethinking of how to deal with this 
stuff internationally. Now, how did all this look from where you're sitting, you know, advising governments, sitting in the UK, looking at this from outside the US perspective? Well, I mean, the, the Brownfield um, statement was was huge. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was huge within drug policy circles. It didn't, I mean, it got some media coverage. It didn't particularly reverberate around the world uh outside of drug policy circles but you know it's you know it's still being quoted today and i think you're absolutely right it was a it was a a, a pivotal moment because it was basically the us acknowledging that the global consensus on, on on prohibition of all drugs was you know crumbling um and they needed to be tolerant of because the brownfield wasn't he didn't just talk about cannabis as well he talked about the legalization of of all drugs or or other drugs drugs only i can't remember the exact wording that he used but that was really, really significant, too. And it created the context for, I think, the debate that has unfolded subsequently. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how the, the, what's going on in Colombia with the debate around coca leaf and, and cocaine regulation is going to stress test that. You know, how, how far can countries like Colombia push things before the US starts to get pretty jumpy? And I, I suspect um, since Petro's uh, election, they have been going, well, hang on a sec. This 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 guy, this the new president of Colombia is actually talking about legalizing cocaine. And, you know, I, I've been working on this bill that you mentioned in your introduction uh, that, uh, around the regulation of coca leaf that includes a pilot for uh, a legally regulated cocaine market for, for non-medical use, very strictly regulated. Go into the details if you want, but it's in that bill and one of the people who was on the committee that worked on that, that 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 worked on that bill was Petro, and he is now president. So he's spoken favor it. It's a favor of it. It's all on the record. He's voted for it. Um, it's all on the record. And you know, when the Economist did their uh, a, a feature on cocaine regulation back in November, he then tweeted it. Um, you know, a, the the a screen grab at the full the full editorial that was saying, you know, Biden should legalize cocaine. They need to go further than just pardoning a few people for, for cannabis. So I, it's going to be interesting to see how the US actually reacts to that. But, um, you know, if there was if there was a stress test of the Brownfield Doctrine, I think what's happening in Colombia is going to be it. It's going to be really fascinating to see how that plays out. So, you know, I should tell our listeners that, that Steve has been the lead author on a number of very important publications. The first one that they wrote maybe almost 15 years ago was basically a blueprint for legal regulation of drugs called Blueprint for Regulation. But he's also been the lead author on a volume called How to Regulate Cannabis, which is now in its third edition. Uh, more recently, a couple of years ago, they published How to Regulate Stimulants, which included this issue that Steve's talking about now around coke and cocaine and around amphetamine and I think also MDMA, and they're currently fundraising to produce a volume about how to regulate psychedelics. Now, this Steve, what I want to go is on this coca cocaine yep. thing. I mean, obviously, coca has been legally produced in Bolivia and Peru for many decades, right? There was always an exception within the UN conventions um, that allowing them to produce it for in, you know local purposes, but never allowed to export any cocaine except for the kind of decoconalized coca leaf that's used as part of Coca-Cola's flavoring and such, and some and some tiny bit that's used for pharmaceutical purposes because cocaine still does mm -hmm. have limited uh, medicinal pharmaceutical purposes. But when we look at what's going on now. Right. I mean, there's obviously the issue domestically about how do you regulate this. Um, but before we get into that, one of the big elephants in the room always is the United Nations. 
right? The United Nations, the anti-drug conventions going back, you know, not just to the opium conventions of the early 20th century over 100 years ago, but to the 1936 Control Convention, the 61 Single Convention, the subsequent ones in 71, 72, and 88. Um, that was always seen as a barrier to any form of states legalizing markets beyond the research or strictly medical. Now, to go back to Uruguay, I mean, obviously, when Uruguay does this, the United Nations, and by UN, we should specify there's two major, there's three major UN drug agencies, right? There's the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, UNODC, which kind of funds programs around the world and whose head is a semi-public figure on drug control. There's the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which is a, a grouping of all the various governments that meets, you know, periodically in every spring in Vienna. And then there's the INCB, the International Narcotics Control Board, which has sort of been a watchdog of the conventions. Now, when Uruguay is moving forward and Mojica is saying, we're going to do this and we don't give a damn, and the INCB reportedly sends a nasty letter to Mojica saying, you can't do this. Well, what happened then? I mean, obviously, they just did it anyway. Um, the, the, the thing about the INCB, which is, you know, like, like you say, they're, the kind of, they're a kind of watchdog uh, of, on, on compliance to these, the prohibitionist tenets within the, the, within, the treat, with the, within the three treaties that you mentioned, is that their, their enforcement power is quite limited. I mean, they can, in theory, re make recommendations to um, more senior bodies within the, uh, within the UN and that could ultimately result in sanctions or some some other kind of uh, punitive intervention, but that's never actually happened. I guess one of the reasons it's never actually happened is because until Uruguay, no country had ever, you know, crossed that line in the sand. You know, Uruguay was the first country, essentially, to make a kind of hard defection from the treaties. You know, the, the consensus around global prohibition, including cannabis prohibition, had held for a long time. And, and the strength of the treaties is essentially based, it's rooted in the fact that member states agree to, to, to abide by them. You know, these, they're, they're, they're quite difficult to enforce against uh, non-compliance or breaches in, in, in treaty commitments. And when Uruguay moved forward with this, it's true the the INCB did did send them sort of snarky letters and the the head of the then INCB actually referred to Uruguay as pirates which was incredibly undiplomatic and inappropriate language for a UN agency to be referring to a, to a member state as um but they they made an argument that uh they were make doing the reforms in pursuit of uh the human rights and public health of the citizens of Uruguay and their commitments to those goals, the higher goals of the UN Charter, um, superseded technical compliance to you know one or two articles in these in these creaky old drug treaties. That you know it's worth reminding people the 1961 treaty, which it's 1961. You know this is this is like more than 60 years old now, and was being drafted in the 1940s and 1950s, an era which is completely different you know, political, economic, social and cultural landscape to the one we live in now, particularly around drug use. I mean, you know, the, the, the 60s hadn't happened. And, you know, in the 1940s, you know, Al Capone was still alive. This is when those the, the, the foundational bedrock of global prohibition was being drafted. 
And the, the Uruguayans basically said, look, this creaky old treaty, it's no longer relevant. We think that our, uh, the, the, our commitments to uh, peace and security and health and well-being of mankind that are enshrined in the, the overarching UN Charter are more important than technical compliance to these creaky old treaties. And we are going to essentially, they said, we're just going to ignore them. Um, and we, we will engage in a constructive debate how to resolve these tensions. And that kind of created the blueprint which Canada followed. I think the difference between Canada and Uruguay, because Canada became the second country to formally, uh, the second member state to formally legalize cannabis for non-medical uses. Canada was a bit more bold. They actually acknowledged that what they were doing was in non-compliance. But, and they essentially made the same argument. They said, look, this is in the interest of our citizens. You know, we are following the the guidance of the UN Charter in terms of peace and security and health and well well being of our citizens, and we will engage in a constructive debate in the relevant forums to try and resolve these tensions. And they kind of left it there. And the INCB got a bit pissy and sent a few snarky letters, both Uruguay and Canada and other countries now that are, that are following in their footsteps. But essentially, there wasn't a great deal that the INCB could do, apart from kind of a bit of finger wagging and kind of, you know, ooh, naughty, naughty, and, and give them a bit of a telling off in their annual report. You know, in many ways, that that prohibitionist consensus and the treaties have been remarkably effective at maintaining global prohibition. But now the cracks are there. Um, the first cracks in the dam, it's starting to turn into a flood. Mm -hmm. And now we're having five or six countries in Europe. We're seeing Thailand, South Africa, Mexico, and all these other countries. So once you have multiple countries defecting, then the whole system starts to, to collapse in its own internal conditions. And something has to change. You know, Either you get a new convention yeah. or the yeah. conventions are repealed or the conventions are amended or, or something has to give. And I think that's the stage we're at now, particularly with the cannabis issue. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second-grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself 
endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums, but I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See, I mean, Steve, you're reminding me that, you know, back in the old days when I was first speaking out in the late 80s, and one of our leading antagonists was the chairman of the U.S. Congress Select Committee on Narcotics, Charlie Rangel, very prominent black politician out of Harlem. And he was the one I was debating on national television, all this stuff. And he does a he does a hearing. And part of his rhetorical thing is, well, what's your plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to sell it? How are you going to kind of imitating his uh, kind of voice that he had um, back, back then, right? And I remember thinking, you know, is he actually serious about wanting to hear proposals? And I don't think he was. I mean, I sort of took the opportunity. I think, as you know, you know, back when I was teaching at Princeton, I put together a Princeton working group on the future of drug use and alternatives to drug prohibition. It had 18 distinguished academics from about a dozen different disciplines to try to come up with a basic model of how do you think about legally regulating drugs? How do you find the right compromise between individual rights and community rights, the right compromise between putting a stake through the heart of the black market organized crime, yet at the same time having a non-free market public health approach. How do you balance all that? But we didn't have that many models to go on. I mean, we could look at alcohol and tobacco to some extent, but it wasn't all that developed. But what I found was that when we put out our recommendations from the Princeton Working Group in an article I published in Daedalus uh, 30 years ago, 1992, there was really no market for that. And what you did with Transform beginning about 15 years ago was really, one was you put this out with a level of sophistication and a level of depth that really nobody had done before. And secondly, in terms of the timing, there was the beginnings of a market for this. I mean, when you wrote the first blueprint for regulation, that was almost before that time, but you laid the groundwork. And obviously your volumes on regulating cannabis and stimulants are, are ever more timely in this front. Now, all of this goes to say that background issue of the United Nations, what I remember this is what I want to ask you about, is five, six, seven years ago, there was this vigorous and sometimes almost personal debate happening within the international drug reform community about how we should think about the conventions. And I remember there were people saying, we have to focus just on getting rid of the conventions entirely and replacing them with something like maybe the WHO framework of tobacco control. And others would say, that's unrealistic. Let's focus on revising the conventions and removing cannabis and maybe 
maybe coca from the conventions. And then others would say, no, just let's just do what uh, the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, did, where they withdrew from the conventions and then rejoined, making an exception. And then they say, let's just do what Mojica did. Let's just let's just ignore the conventions, essentially. But what's your take a few years after the fact now on that whole debate among the reformers and whether it was a productive debate or whether it really actually resulted in something concrete? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that it, it, it was really important to be having that debate and it was to, to be to laying out these different potential pathways for reform of the UN system. Um, yeah, you know, nothing really has significantly changed at the UN since the gas in terms of the actual you know, uh, the legal foundations. I mean, the treaties are all still in place. There's been one minor tweak to uh, scheduling of cannabis, which is now acknowledged to have some medical uses, but that's basically the only thing that's happened. But what has changed is that more and more states are saying um, publicly, and if you publicly in the UN forum, so these are things that would only be have been said by Uruguay 10 years ago, but now you're getting eight, 10, 15 countries standing up and saying, these treaties are no longer fit for purpose. They are not meeting our needs and they need to be reformed. And more and more countries are not just saying uh, there is a need for change at the UN level, but they are actually just making reforms, you know, essentially in breach of their technical obligations under the treaties. So the water is building behind the dam and at some point something has to give. Now exactly what the the mechanism of, of that reform will be is unclear, but a, a tipping point um, will be reached and I think we're approaching it fairly soon, particularly with cannabis, but perhaps with the whole treaty framework more broadly, where there is just an acknowledgement that the system is no longer working and more and more and if it doesn't reform it will simply collapse and it's the, the treaty system it's important to remind people that it doesn't just you know enforce prohibition it also regulates um controlled medicines um globally so you know the, the use of opioids and the use of mm-hmm. um s- various drugs which which can be misused non-medically uh, are also regulated by the treaties, and that they do, so it does have an important function that we we, we would generally seek to maintain as well. Now, Steve, there was one other historical thing. I mean, we're obviously talking, and we'll go more into this around cannabis, and also what's happening now in Colombia around coke and cocaine. But there was also this little fascinating story that happened in New Zealand some years ago right, maybe seven, eight years ago, right, where they were struggling with what to do about the problem of synthetic cannabis and where two of the biggest producers of synthetic cannabis essentially approached the government, said, look, we have a mutual interest in your regulating synthetic cannabinoids. We know that our products are relatively safe. We don't like all these other, you know, fly-by-night operations putting out these products which can be quite dangerous. And the result was the New Zealand parliament passing by like a hundred to one margin a law essentially creating a domestic kind of like FDA, Food and Drug Administration, to regulate drugs that could be sold not for medical purposes. And there is giving producers, corporations, the opportunity to say, we have a product, we want to put it on the market for recreational purposes. And if we can prove that it's basically got a high margin of safety, the government will allow us to do so. So New Zealand moves forward with this thing. They pass this law. Unfortunately, it never gets implemented. But between the time it gets passed and, and and enacted, and the time it never gets implemented, there must have been some reaction 
in Vienna, in the headquarters of the United Nations, you know, narcotics system. And you were going to these meetings. I mean, every year, I think you and many others were going to the meetings in Vienna of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. What was the reaction well, uh, um, I mean, at that, that level? Because that was potentially a model for broader it legalization. Was. And it, I mean, it's, it's interesting that the reaction was incredibly muted because those synthetic cannabis drugs at the time were not controlled under the UN conventions. I mean, we, we, we have the same... Uh-huh. There is the same issue um, that countries have domestically, which is, you know, as as these novel psychoactive substances are invented, they have to then get, uh, ba- you know, essentially they have to get banned. They have to get scheduled or added added to your uh, the prohibitionist list, and that 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 does happen at the C- at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs every year. A whole bunch of drugs are kind of read out, and there's votes, and they all get banned. Um, but at the time, they weren't illegal, those New Zealand synthetic cannabinoids. And so th- th- there wasn't really any engagement. And, th- and also, the UN doesn't really ha- didn't really have a mandate to, to, to do anything about it until they were um, scheduled. And to be scheduled, countries have to report them and they have to go through this process. And the WHO has to produce a report. And it all takes quite a long time. All of those drugs have subsequently been banned, I should add now. Um, but by that time, mm-hmm. what was proposed in New Zealand had already kind of fallen to pieces. I mean, it's interesting that law did pass in New Zealand and they do have this, it's still there, it's still on the books. They do have this um, really quite good, sophisticated regulatory framework. And I did some work on it, um, which it was very welcome in many ways, um, but no drugs ever made it into it. So it's like, it's like this empty shell of a legislation. And one of the, it was kind of a daft reason in the end because they, they're, to get the toxicology uh, to establish the safety limits, you had to do animal testing. And they also had another law that said, you can't do animal testing on on these drugs. So they kind of, they're, they're, they just got caught in this sort of legislative catch catch 22. Yeah. And I, you know, I wouldn't want to see animal testing done on novel psychiatric substances either, but it was a bit of a shame that there wasn't an alternative route. But interestingly in New Zealand, even before the Psychoactive Substances Act in uh, 2016, I think it was, they did actually have a system put in place a few years before that, back in the 2000s, I think around 2008. They actually developed a regulatory framework for a specific drug called BZP, which was a kind of kind of crappy low rent uh, stimulant drug, you know, and, and it was being widely sold as one of these legal highs, you know, as one of these uh, novel psychiatric substances that wasn't covered by the law. It, it, it became really quite popular in New Zealand, and they did actually put a regulatory framework and and in in their legal system for for the regulation of this one specific drug. So for a couple of years in New Zealand, and this was years before the the Psychiatric Substance Act, they did actually have a regulatory framework for the sale of this uh, this crappy stimulant called called BZP. Um, and you know it was sold legally, and there was there were there was you know quality control, and you had to have dosage put on the packaging, and a lot of the things that we'd like to see. It wasn't brilliant, but it was all right. Um, and it was actually the hmm. first that I'm aware of, the first legal regulatory framework anywhere in the world for a drug outside of the conventions that was a, sti- a synthetic stimulant drug. So that that happened. It, it then fell foul of some sort of political shenanigans and was eventually repealed and. And, and banned along with everything else. But New Zealand does have this sort of interesting history. And they, they are, of course, it was only like two years ago, they narrowly missed um, legalizing cannabis by in a national referendum by about, you know, a, hand, a handful of votes. I think it was about half a percentage point. Mm-hmm. That 
their, their national referendum. Sadly, they, they just failed on that. So we're not going to see cannabis legalization in New Zealand, not for a few years anyway, but I'm sure it, it will happen someday. someday that soon. was the one where the prime minister wouldn't say which way she wouldn't say whether she was for it or against it. And then afterwards said, oh, I voted for it, but I didn't want to yeah, buy it. Yeah, and I wish, I wish she'd just said, if she'd said that probably would have swung it. But I think it was about 60,000 votes in the end. They, they just narrowly lost. But, you know, the fact that it even made it to mm-hmm. a referendum and the fact that it was that close um, just just goes to show how you know how far we've come. Steve, let me just let me Sorry. just interject though. Let me just interject to say that often when people ask me about legal legalization, how do I define it? How do I distinguish from decriminalization? I say you know legalization essentially means the legal regulation of this market, yeah. like we have with alcohol and tobacco products. And so in a way, I look at Mexico and South Africa and say, well, okay, the courts rule that way, um, but until you actually have the government legally regulating shops yeah. or at least stores being up and selling without being, even if they're not regulated, them being up and selling openly without the police having any basis to crack down on them. In Mexico and South Africa, you still don't have stores popping up openly selling cannabis products um, uh, without fear of any prosecution or arrest. No, we're, we're, right? you're, in a, so you're in a kind of limbo to, legal transition state in those two In a limbo. But, but but basically Malta, in Malta, legally regulated Can't, shops not selling quite, cannabis. Not quite, not quite. So so what they did in uh, Malta is interesting in that they have, they have legalized um, home growing within certain parameters, a certain number of plants, and if you follow certain rules. Um, and they've legalized um, what in Spain is kind of called cannabis social clubs. So not-for-profit cooperatives that are membership-based. So you can join a membership-based cooperative and uh, then th- th- there will be um, a specific cannabis grown for that cooperative to be supplied to the members of that cooperative on a not-for-profit basis. But they have not op- actually opened yet. So they're only opening uh, for license applications for these non-profit associations uh, next month. So that, that you can't yet actually go and buy cannabis anywhere. And even if you wanted to, you'd have to be a resident of Malta and you'd have to join one of these associations. And then you would be able to have access to legal cannabis via that route unless you were growing your own at home. So they're not going to have any actual retail commercial market uh, as such at all, only these non, non-profit cannabis associations. So it's kind of an interesting uh, a model. You know, it's, it, this is a fascinating time for, for drug policy folks because you're seeing these more commercial models in uh, the US. You're seeing kind of these state models in state control models like in Uruguay and certain and state controlled retailing in places like Quebec in Canada. But now you're seeing these European models emerging and this interesting one in Malta where there isn't going to be a commercial retail market at all, only home growing and not for profit um, associations. So we're going to just going to be really interesting to see, see what works and what doesn't work with, with these models. You know, what can we learn from for countries that, that follow in their footsteps? Well, now, Uruguay was kind of interesting, right? Because they did a, basically a tripartite model, yeah. right? Where they said, basically, you can grow your own up to a certain point, which is a core element of what's going on in the US. Then they did some of the Spanish ca- so cannabis clubs, yeah. social club model. So people could have a kind of cooperative where people were a member and somebody would grow for the group. And then they did a pharmacy sort of distribution model. And now that's been going on for about almost, what, seven, yeah, eight years like now, um, I mean, how is it working out? And and are we seeing a lot of, I mean, is the pharmacy the principal source? What's happened with the black market there? 
I mean, the black market, the, the illegal market has certainly contracted. But interestingly, the the pharmacy sales, uh, which were, were probably too restrictive and they have not actually turned out to be the predominant um, supply model. So far more people uh, obtain their cannabis through home growing or through the, the, the not-for-profit uh, social clubs than via the pharmacies. And I think the problem really with the pharmacies was... Uh, that they were just too restrictive. You have to register as a, a, a registered buyer to get a kind of uh, like, you know, digital passcode thing so that you can act, you can buy a certain amount each month. And the cannabis that they sell is quite low potency, certainly by American standards. I think you can get 7% and 9% THC, which a lot of people would regard as too low or that if you're used to kind of 20 percent plus thc cannabis you probably regard that as too weak i think they're looking to now introduce a stronger strain of around 15 percent um but it was non-branded there was only these two varieties you could get these two potencies and you could only get it from a relatively small number of pharmacies um and you had to buy in person so you couldn't do mail order delivery so for people who weren't near one of these pharmacies it was actually pretty inaccessible and a lot of people were turned off from using this you know they didn't want to register with the government as someone who uses cannabis for kind of unsurprising obvious reasons people don't want to be on a government database as people who use cannabis given given you know the the history of the war on drugs and persecution of, of cannabis users so actually about 10 times more cannabis is consumed from home grow and the social clubs than actually the pharmacy sales model, which suggests to me that the pharmacy sales model was too restrictive. I think you probably, you know, even for someone like me, who I know, Ethan, you're always teasing me about being a hyper regulator. um, I think they overcooked it. I mean, I was involved in making proposals and helping design some of this, but I, I, you know, we were arguing, I was down there with Lisa Sanchez, who's now the director of um, MUCD in Mexico. And we were saying, look, that's just too it's too restrictive. You know, if you're having a registry of, of buyers, people aren't just aren't going to be into it. And I, I think we were proved right because it just hasn't proved as popular, I think, as they were expecting. And people were much more drawn to the idea of these um, social clubs and homegrown models because they don't they don't they just didn't want to be in the system. They didn't want that. They were worried about surveillance right. and privacy. Well, well, Steve, but it does seem, though, that, that for example, the, the import from Paraguay had dropped dramatically, yeah, yeah, though, I that people it, are getting. If they're getting it illicitly, they're getting it diverted. They're getting it from home grows, from friends, or from social clubs, or what have you. Yeah, and the, right? stu- the, and the, the, so the stuff from... that was coming in, in from Paraguay was pretty terrible quality stuff, lots of sticks and seeds, and it was very low potency, and it often had pesticides on it. It was it was pretty crappy weed, really. And so the stuff that was being produced, even the, the, the low potency pharmacy stuff, um, and certainly the stuff from the social clubs was just far, far better. Uh, and it, But it was coming in at kind of the same price. So the Paraguay imports um, and that whole market, yeah, collapsed. And that, that is an un- undoubted right. positive in terms of reducing the, the, the scale of the, the illegal market. So to that extent, mm-hmm. it's been a success. I think in public health terms, it's been regarded as a success. Uh, youth use, which is obviously a, always a focus of these debates, um, has has you know, either stayed level or in many cases gone down. There certainly hasn't been a jump in levels of use. Um, Adult use has gone up a bit, a bit like it has in some other legalization places. But, you know, the the, the much dreaded explosion in cannabis use and, you know, armies of child cannabis zombies walking the streets, none of that, none of that stuff (laughs) happened. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. 
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Steve, we've been friends for 20 years. When it comes to thinking about legal regulation, we're actually pretty, on the big picture, we're pretty much on the same page. That so you have to find ways of balancing public health and public safety and maximizing tax revenue, but protecting young people and, you know, respecting what communities want to do in terms of where things can be sold and limiting advertising and all this sort of stuff. But when push comes to shove, we also get into it. And Steve likes to tease me, calling me a libertarian, which, of course, I I'm not. I'm a civil libertarian, but I'm certainly my politics lean left of center. And I like to tease him about being a hyper-regulating socialist, which, of course, is probably more true than anything <laughs> he accuses me of being. Um, but that's it. Steve and I were recently, uh, in late 2022, at a gathering in the U.S. Um, that was very focused on issues of social equity and racial equity and how to prevent the growing concentration um, in the marijuana and the cannabis industry in the U.S. and elsewhere. But, I mean, Steve, I remember, I remember 
remember teasing you at this thing because a couple of interesting things were coming out of this. One is there were people not just from the U.S. there, but from about a dozen countries, and not just you know Europe, but Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America. And the first kind of you know kind of a realization that hit that the people coming from Caribbean, Africa, Latin America it suddenly occurred to them that they were looking at the U.S. as a potential market for them to be exporting their cannabis to, but that all the folks in the U.S. were going, well, wait a second, we don't want any exports. We want this to be all domestic driven. We want to help our small growers. And the second thing that was interesting was that some of the activists and small cannabis business owners there, you know, people of color running small marijuana businesses, if you closed your eyes and listened to them talking about the challenges they confronted, what jumped out at me was that here were women of color running small businesses, caring about equity, but for the first 60% of their comments, they could have been a Trump-loving small businessman Republican, right, complaining about overtaxation, overregulation, and realizing that what was killing not, you know, you can hear the big guys, the multi-state operators, what we call the you know, bigger cannabis organizations that have operations in lots of states complaining about overtaxation, overregulation, but to hear the little guys saying it and sounding like even if our politics on the left and we care about equity, this is a major problem. And I wonder, Steve, in that meeting, I mean, I mean, you know, you've been a big advocate for high levels of regulation, taxation, all this sort of stuff. I mean, was there an aha moment for you there or anything surprising that jumped out at you there? Yeah. I mean, well, one of the other things that came out was that there was a lot of fear of federal regulation, uh, of federal legalization, which I was I was kind of surprised at. But I think there was a, I mean, one of the interesting things I think about the US, the way it's unfolded at the US is that because um, regulation of cannabis has only operated within states. I mean, you can't have trade between states. You can have multi-state operators, but they have to operate, you know, within each state. So you've had these kind of now 21, I think it is, small scale, not small scale, some of them are quite big scale. I mean, obviously California is huge, but you've had these kind of like islands of uh, island industries that, 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 that they, they can't trade with each other. But if, if federal legalization opens that up, I think there was a lot of fear of kind of um, corporate consolidation and that you would get these big kind of corporate players uh, and the, and the, the smaller medium sized um, market actors wouldn't be able to compete with them. Um, on a, in, in a national or, or in the future international market, and they would just get gobbled up or kind of brushed aside. And I think there is there was a very legitimate concern about that, um, and d- didn't really come up with that many answers. I don't think because it's quite difficult. I, th- I mean, I think that there there are potential answers, but it would be it's important to try and protect the interests of the smaller smaller medium sized businesses to pre- prevent the emergence of oligopolies and, and monopolies who could sort of distort the market and, and consolidate mm-hmm. the market in ways that, that I think would reduce diversity and reduce social, social yeah. equity. But there was also concerns, well, there was well, also Steve, concerns I... about legal, legal uh, federal legalization having an impact on some of the really cool social equity programs that have been set up at state level. And that, that you know, we are seeing these things in Massachusetts and now New York and New Jersey and Illinois and a, a number of other states, really incredible social equity programs that would, you know, give licensing preference to social equity candidates from impacted communities that would provide grants and support um, that would, you know, could could really help uh, 
build and and support people from impacted communities to participate in these markets in a meaningful kind of equal way that that federal legalization could kind of undermine a lot of those efforts if it's not done in a, in, a, in a thoughtful way that respects the interests of some of these state state social equity programs so i was very struck by that but i, I think the point you made ethan about um the international markets i think that's that was really important because even the people who well actually steve Sorry, before, before we get into the international market thing i just want to say you know since i and my colleagues were deeply involved in the drafting of many of the medical marijuana and the marijuana legalization you know statutes we look at what you know what we were involved in in california or oregon you know 2014 2016 i mean obviously we're learning a lot from that you see in california a vast illicit market that continues you know because of over taxation, overregulation, and a host of other variables. So the question about when I look at some of your writing and your blueprints, right, they still have a strong regulatory, um, you know, a strong regulatory thing and tax and all this. Do you think that when you come out with your, you know, fourth edition of regulating cannabis, how do you think it'll be different in terms of what you see happening? Um, on the ground in many of these states and I mean, countries. You know, if you if you if you if you read what we've we, we've we've said, Ethan, and I know, I know you have done. It, it's a, I hope it's a bit more nuanced. I mean, I would prefer to have um, you know localized or, or and social controls and social norms dictating a lot of the things that we that we we talk about. But what we've said is we mm -hmm. think that at the, as a starting point you should err on the side of a more restrictive, more heavily regulated model. And then over time, as things are shown to, to, to be working okay, which bits are working, which bits aren't, you can then relax things. What I think is problematic is if you start with a very open market, a very un, maybe unregulated or underregulated market, it become, it's much harder then to impose restrictions or regulations if things aren't if things aren't working. And we've seen that with alcohol and tobacco. I mean, you know, you look at tobacco now, uh, particularly in Europe, but also in the US, you know, it's it's been a decades long battle to try and impose better regulation on tobacco in terms of marketing controls and in terms of information on packaging and in terms of, um, you know, smoking in public spaces and so on. When you've got a, when you've got a multi-billion dollar entrenched industry lobbying against regulation, it's much harder to pursue public health goals in that context. So our view is that you you, you start with a, a sort of public health regulation model um, and, and, and try and learn lessons from some of the failings of alcohol and tobacco. And if things are shown to be working, then you relax it afterwards rather than trying to do it the other way around. So I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not so into Steve, those things for the devil's... sake of it. I'm not a hyper-regulator just because I no, just I, love regulating I, stuff. I, I, I get it. But, and, and I basically agree. And, I, the, and the issue about corporate capture, when big alcohol, big tobacco can you know, keep the taxes low and the regulations low for a long period of time. But to play devil's advocate on this stuff, right? it's also the case that if what you're trying to do to some extent is transition quickly from the illicit market, from the majority of the industry being illicit to being legally regulated, you want to have a low taxation policy, right? You want to find ways to induce people, you know, to shift from both consumers and producers to shift into right. a different Well, it, type it comes of back market, to what you were right? talking about earlier, right? Ethan, that this idea of, of balance. And, and one of the issues, one of the challenges we mm -hmm. have when we have these policy debates, when we're designing regulatory frameworks, is that you have 
have an, a range of different stakeholders who have different priorities. And sometimes those priorities are in conflict with each other. Public health people generally, and, and tobacco uh, tax is a good example of this, public health people generally want to have lots of tax, keep the prices of these things high, because most economic analysis shows that if you put the price up, people will consume less. And we've certainly seen that with tobacco. As you, as you ramp up the tobacco taxes, use generally goes down. But what it also does is it incentivizes um, illegal market activity. Now, with tobacco, that's generally smuggling from uh, lower tax regimes and selling it in high tax regimes, but some counterfeiting. But with cannabis, it means that you have a parallel illegal market that will seek to undercut the higher price, higher taxed um, cannabis products. And, you know, there's a tension there. You have a tension between the need to, the, a desire or a priority to dissuade use or, or, or certainly not encourage use by having low prices and dissuade use by having high prices versus a desire from people who prioritize criminal justice outcomes to minimize the illegal market. And there's no perfect answer to that. We just have to decide what our priorities are and try and strike the right balance, acknowledging that you know you, ca you can't have it all. Um, different stakeholders have different priorities. And the, the, the problem I think is, and you've touched on this with the corporate capture thing, is that you know, corporate actors and commercial actors whose primary goal is essentially profit generation, they will have a series of, um, you know, regulatory goals that may be at odds with the public health goals. You know, they are seeking to make money and not to protect public health. I'm not saying all corporate actors are totally uninterested in public health and, and other things like sustainability and social justice. But generally speaking, they will prioritize, you know, corporate profits over those other social health and you know sustainability goals and there you have attention and if they become very powerful and if you do get consolidation and if you do have these billion dollar corporations you know flooding the hill with their lobbyists and all the rest of it it becomes very difficult for social justice advocates who don't have the same access to that kind of political and media and sort of publicity capital right. and lobbying capital and you know PR budgets to compete with them. And it becomes very difficult. And I, I actually think it's huge credit to um, the, the, the non-government organizations that they have been able to, you know, hold their own against some of these corporate voices uh, on the market, you know, the, the, whether it's the Drug Policy Alliance or Transform or uh, people like Charlene Title at the Parabola Center, um, you know, who are making the argument you know, critical of, of, of corporate capture and critical of some of the kind of over-commercialization, um, that they that mm -hmm. they are able to hold their own against these corporations that have these gigantic budgets. And, you know, they are actually funding front organizations like CPIR. I can't even remember what CPIR is an anagram for. Cannabis, it's got, it, you know, basically it's it's funded by the alcohol and tobacco industry as to promote cannabis legalization that is shaped in in the interests of, the alcohol and tobacco industry who want to, you know, move in and profit on, on that new industry. And it's really important that we push back against that because if you have alcohol and tobacco industry money and big corporate money guiding the legislation at this early stage, federal legislation and state legislation, it will be made in their interests, in the interests of corporate profits and not in the interests, to quote the UN treaties, of the health and well-being of of you know, humankind. And yeah. that's a big concern. And, and something oh, we really Steve, need to watch I out. have to say, 
It is complicated. Because I remember at this meeting that you and I are both at, I'm asking, so what are the models as more and more states are embracing more of an, you know, trying to give a a head start and a leg up and assistance to the non-big players, you know, especially to people of color, to veterans, to women, uh, to people who have, you know, remarkably, people who've had a marijuana conviction getting getting a head start on getting an opportunity to get a license. And if you ask, well, so what are the best models out there right now? And the sense I got from some of the conversations was that there were two models out there. One was a limited one in Oakland, California, with a fairly progressive government that seems to have found some way to provide, you know, kind of equity preferences. But the other one, fascinatingly, was Oklahoma, right? One of the reddest states in America, which has legalized medical marijuana. And it's now a wild west out there with almost no regulation. People, growers from California moving to Oklahoma, Oklahoma illegally supplying, you know, beginning to supply the rest of the country. But what's the case there is it's probably one of the least regulated states in the country. One result of which is that anybody who can spend like two grand or something to get a license can open up a medical cannabis shop and it's very easy to get a medical cannabis ID. But the result is, is if, if you go, I'm told, if you go into a black neighborhood, odds are pretty good that it's going to be some black guy from the community who's got the local dispensary, right? So there are ways in which the kind of very low regulation sometimes can advantage the small guys as well, at least so long as we don't have federal legalization. I mean, you know, I'm I'm up for looking at that. Generally, I I frown on that low levels of regulation like that. But that's not that I don't want um, you know, uh, people who don't have access to significant amounts of capital to be able to participate in the market. I, I really do. I just think you have to use your equity models to support them. So you have other other states have grant programs and, you know, interest-free loan programs and training programs to help people, you know, enable them to compete on a more even playing field with some of the more established actors. And you know the 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 New York no. New York just issued its first 38 or 36 38 licenses I think last month and they were all to social equity candidates eight of them were to non-profit actors which I just think is absolutely amazing and 40% of the tax revenue from the uh, the new legal cannabis market in New York is going to go back into impacted communities in in terms of social programs which I also think is amazing then in 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 New Jersey, it's 70%. 70% of the tax revenue is going to be reinvested in impacted communities. Now, if you think about it, that is really amazing. That's really amazing. In in the US, to have 70% of the tax revenue in, a, in an emerging market be reinvested in, uh, in communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, I think that's absolutely remarkable. It does bring up some real challenges. No, uh, Steve, kind listen. Of fundamental I, I tenets th- of, of, of capitalism and how... how how states well, I mean, look, I, and I also have a kind of a whole panoply of views on this. On the one hand, I'm very proud. I mean, in California, which we played a major role in drafting in 2016, has enough, really pioneered some of these provisions about directing tax revenue to the communities that have been most harmed, about giving certain assistance to, you know, basically equity actors to get involved in this industry. And, you know, obviously it was my successors at Drug Policy Alliance who drove the New York legalization model. So in that sense, it's very, you know, I, I feel quite proud of what's happened. But then I ask myself, um, if your number one objective is increasing the amount of tax revenue that's going to go to communities that were harmed, you want this industry to grow quickly, right? But the slower you roll it out, the less tax revenue that there's going to be. 
that secondly, the more regulation you have, the harder it's going to be. I mean, one thing that advantages the big players in all of this is that they have expertise in dealing with government regulation. They have lawyers. They've oftentimes come from other industries where they've been involved in this. Whereas if you're starting up or you've previously been involved in the illegal side of the industry and not had you know any, uh, any interaction with government regulators, right, that basically these are all barriers to the small guys getting better and better But it better depends on the regulation stuff, model you go right? for it. So, you, you know, you, you, this is one of the really beautiful and exciting things about cannabis legalization regulation is that, you know, we get to design the market structure from scratch and we can make decisions around who participates, how and when. And you, you can preference smaller actors. You can restrict participation of bigger actors. You can prevent, you know, um, emergence. You, you can limit the number of licenses that any one actor can have. You can support and do preferential licensing for particular communities or participants. You can make these decisions and you can reshape the market in, in all kinds of interesting ways. And, you know, it, it, I genuinely think that it may have impact on other markets and nothing to do with cannabis. Because, you know, imagine if you had 70% of the tax revenue from, I don't know, oil, being directed into environmental, mm -hmm. you know, cause environmental sustainability. This is, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be sort of ridiculously evangelical and idealistic about this, but these things do have the potential to help reshape how we think about markets um, and commerce and entrepreneurship and, you know, community participation in a, in a much broader way. I'd, I'd, I'd love to see, some of these really innovative, amazing cannabis reforms having a kind of ripple knock-on effect far beyond drug markets. Well, we'll see. I mean, I would like to see that happen too. There's also a major difference though between talking about where the tax revenue is directed to on the one hand and how one is going to regulate or create opportunities in the interest on the other. And to some extent, there can be, even be a conflict between those two things. It's nice to think that this could become a model for the future and that it could even survive federal legalization. On the other hand, we do know that there is an overwhelming force behind basic, the basic nature of mm -hmm. capitalism right? Capitalism, you know, especially, I mean, look, even when we look about, you know, the illegal markets, those are kind of capitalism in its rawest form. But when we look at legal capitalism and the different varieties of, of capitalism, some social welfare capitalism to crony capitalism, to free market capitalism, to kleptocratic capitalism, I mean, most of the world is essentially capitalist. And we also tend to see that some movement towards concentration inevitably happens in most industries. So let me bring this down to a very concrete example. You are an advisor and you've played a role in Canada. Now, Canada doesn't have the types of state controls, I mean, in the same way or limitations that we have in the U.S. You do have more of a national model in Canada. And what's your take about how Canada is evolving and what lessons can be learned for better or worse from what's happened in Canada? Well, I mean, the, 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 the state controls are over supply and trade. The, the, the individual provinces, the provincial controls, I should say, the, the individual provinces um, they, they regulate retail. And you do have this quite interesting um, variation between the provinces in terms of several of the provinces have government monopolies on the retail. So Quebec, perhaps most high profile, I think, I can't remember the other one, New Brunswick, I think. And a couple of them have a mix of um, go, uh, government stores and you know, conventional commercial stores. And so there is actually quite an interesting amount of variation. Some of them have different uh, age access, 
Um, and some of them, like in Quebec also, they don't allow certain edibles. They don't allow ca- uh, the, the gummies and candy-based edibles. So again, we have this quite in- fascinating sort of laboratory of change where you can look at, you know, okay, what's working in, in, in each one. I mean, I think if you look at the Canada generally, I would say generally it's been a, a reasonable success. If you look at the public health outcomes, if you look at the tax revenue, um, I think there was certainly a problem with the big, big corporate well, actors. In, 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 a lot about... of the big corporate, corporates have kind of collapsed in value. There was probably a, a bit of a bubble in term, an investor bubble, which then collapsed. Um, and the corporatization, I was very worried that we were moving towards a sort of oligopoly situation. And there, there, there was a, a point early on where I think the, the big five companies, they were all uh, measured in the billions, in, valued in the billions, and they were um, more than half of the total market. But that, interestingly, that has actually shrunk. A lot of them have kind of collapsed to a certain extent, your till rays and your, I can't remember what they're all called. But um, they're, they're now, they're like more but like Steve, a let me, third, you, so two, let, let me interrupt you on two issues then. One is when it comes to cultivation, can you have mega cultivation facilities in one province exporting to the rest of the country in yes, Canada? Can, yeah. And secondly, and so that seems to me very different what's going on in the U.S. Yeah. right now. And that means that you could potentially have major concentration where something like we've had, you know, where people envision if you under federal legalization that the Central Valley in California could be exporting to much of the you rest can, of the country. You can, but we can, we, we can make so, the rules. We, so, if, if you're writing the legislation, you get to make the rules. And if you say no one company can cultivate more than X hectares of cannabis, then that is then the law. And so the, if it, but has Canada done that? No, they haven't. I mean, I, I I actually wish that they did. I recommended that they did, and they didn't. So, I, you know, I I, and, I, I and made some recommendations prevents... and worked with the federal task force. Well, I didn't actually draft the law. I'm, I'm... <laughs> I understand. And what and what about in terms of corporate, you know, uh, corporate concentration? I mean, obviously, a lot of these companies grew too fast. They were too full of themselves. They collapsed. But what prevents corporate concentration? Not in very Canada much. And it, it's another it's another thing that I think that they didn't do enough on. Um, there has been a consolidation and corporate corporate capture up to a point, but as I, the point I was just making was that actually um, the system it, it seems to the market seems to have actually in the last couple of years become more diverse and not less, which kind of has surprised me. But that's what the data suggests. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think some of the points you were making earlier that you know one of the things that Canada didn't do well was the was the social equity piece. They really didn't. They've had to kind of retrospectively try and introduce some social equity stuff, um, particularly related to participation of indigenous groups. And, you know, the regulatory bars to entry to the market were way too high, even for their kind of micro cultivation. Um, You you, you needed to have literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, You had to build your facility before you could even apply for a license, which was, you know, crazy. So I think... They didn't do some of the stuff around social equity at all well, but I get the sense that they've they acknowledge some of those shortcomings and are trying to kind of retrospectively kind of engineer in some more social justice stuff and more social equity programs, um, particularly around indigenous participation and micro cultivation. But you know, other countries can see, can look at what's happened in the U.S. states. They can look at what's happened in Canada nationally and at a provincial level, and learn from that and go, well, look, they did this really well. I mean, things like, you know, quality control, um, inspections, packaging uh, regs and so on. Generally, I think all of that stuff, health warnings and um, tax tax controls, I think generally was pretty good. 
And you're seeing about 60% of the mm-hmm. market is now tax and regulated in Canada after uh, four years, five years, sorry. Um, and, you know, it's been it's yeah. been creeping up. It was 30 years. It was 30% after one year, then 50% after like two or three years. And now it's about 60% and it's still going up. Now, 60%, you know, it would be a lot better if that was 80 or 90%, but that's six, still 60% tax and regulated as opposed to 100% illegal and untaxed and unregulated, which is what it was before 2018. So it's still huge progress. I think generally they've done a good job, but there were shortcomings. The question you and I are both mutually interested in, is there any way to kind of get to the point of diversity and diversification and avoiding the conglomeration of wealth and the oligopoly phenomenon, you know, you know, without having the big guys take over in the first place. And the question is, can that realistically happen? Can it, can it, can it really happen given the power of economics in all of this and given the realities of politics in all of this and given the fact that, you know, a big part of the U.S. government is controlled by Republicans who don't care about a lot of this type of thing that you and I are well, talking I, about, I, right? And as you say, when you talk about NAFTA and WTO and all these other sorts of variables. So the question is, is can in fact that happen? And one of the things I find myself saying people who are pursuing equity objectives, especially at the governmental level, is try to think forward five or 10 years, take everything we know about the forces that lead to concentration and to oligopoly takeover and try to figure out what are the things that can effectively be blocked? How do you take a stand in certain areas where you can preserve things that are meaningful? And I think we need to look at the lessons um, from other industries. I mean, you know, if you look at alcohol, I was just looking the other day, Steve, at which states allow liquor to be sold in supermarkets. And I think like a third a third to a half of all U.S. states now allow liquor to be sold in supermarkets. And they vary from you know, conservative states to moderate states to liberal states all around the country. There's no kind of rhyme or reason to that. And I think that in those states where liquor can be sold in supermarkets, you're less likely to have small liquor stores, right? Small wine stores and things like that. So I'm curious, is that how much of you and others, are they looking at the viable models from alcohol control um, that makes sense? Or if we're looking in the global context, looking at the models for, say, coffee production or cacao production, the ones that have been successful in retaining, you know, a real diversity of participation uh, on the cultivation and the distribution side, as opposed to having oligopoly take over. Which elements of industry are the ones where you can best resist oligopoly, whereas which elements of industry are the ones where it's inevitable and therefore you figure out how to kind of canalize, how to direct that stuff so you can protect the small guys without ever thinking you can ultimately block it. But in terms of going forward, and as we think not just about cannabis, as we think about the legal regulation of coca and hopefully cocaine, as we think about MDMA, things like that, how much do you know about people looking at these other models, whether the alcohol field or the cacao and coffee field on the production side? Is that thinking happening? Or not, and if not, why not? I think it is. I mean, we, we we've been trying to get um, people in the in sustainable development and social and the sustainable development goals, people in the development field, um, engage in the drug policy debate, specifically around you know alternative to prohibition and what legal markets for some of these drug drug um, drug plant crops would look like, and how we can build in things like sustainable development and fair trade principles, and you know protecting uh traditional growers 
a lot of these concepts um, have been thought about, you know, organizations like the Transnational Institute in the Netherlands have done a lot of work, Health Poverty Action in the UK have done a lot of work, Transform have been pushing it. Um, and a lot of the things that you've already you've already touched upon, you know, learning lessons from uh, successful fair trade approaches to other agricultural products. Um, but, you know, at, at a domestic level, I think you can do anti-monopoly legislation. You can do an awful lot with licensing controls. You know, you can say no individual economic actor can can take more than X number of licenses. And, you you know, you, you aren't allowed to have vertical integration. You can't own production and retail facilities. You can actually do a lot to prevent those things at the initial legislative stage and if it's if it's if it's hardwired into the legislation at the outset it's not something that will necessarily just get eroded um in time i mean of course legislation can be amended or superseded um but if you don't allow the emergence of these you know ultra powerful multi-billion pound corporations in the first instance um then you know those those power blocks of, of, of lobbying and political influence don't emerge either. So you don't have to then try and retroactively impose responsible regulation and control like we've had to do with alcohol and tobacco. We've done successfully with tobacco to some, to some degree, but we haven't really done with alcohol yet, which is why I would argue that alcohol is critically under-regulated in many ways, particularly around retail and marketing and, and, and corporate sponsorship and so on. But I just think there's a, there's a lot we can do and if you are actually in the position of making the reforms and drafting the legislations which shape the nature of the market from the outset, you have the power to do things very differently. And that's why you do have the possibility of social equity programs that restrict licensing or preference licensing for, for impact to communities. And you are able to legislate that 40% or 70% of tax revenue is redirected into impact to communities. And you can put in place controls that prevent certain actors um, from participating. You can actually do it. You can design and, and, and have markets operate in a different way at a legislative level from the outset. And of course, then there are also options like state monopolies. So in a number of, uh, as I've already said, in a number of Canadian provinces, you do have state monopolies on retail. In Quebec, all of the cannabis shops are run by uh, the provincial government of Quebec. Um, and and this, it's, it's a bit like the alcohol model in some Nordic countries, which in Sweden, for example, all alcohol retailing is run by, is a state monopoly of the, of the Swedish government. Um, or you can have a, a very strictly regulated, effectively a state monopoly model on production as well, um, as they've done in Uruguay. Or you can have non-profit and home growing only, as they've done in Malta. So there are alternatives. There are different ways of doing this. We don't have to go down um, an alcohol and tobacco model. And it used to, it, Ethan, it used to annoy me when you would you would talk about, you know, let's let's legalize and regulate cannabis uh, like we do alcohol, and I, let's tax and regulate cannabis like alcohol. And I go, no, no, let's do it. Let's do it better than that. Don't keep saying that, Ethan. Let's do it. Let's do it better than that. Let's let's learn from all the crappy stuff we've done with alcohol regulation, um, and not do that and do it better. Let's let's use cannabis regulation as an opportunity to show how drugs can be regulated and how markets can be regulated in the interests of the communities in which those markets exist, because rather than in the in the narrow interest of, of governments or in the narrow interests of, of of corporate profits, which is the way that a lot of markets have gone. Um, 
up to now. And that operates at a local level, it operates at a state level, at a national level, at a regional level, and at an international level. So we have to be thinking about the, these intersecting um, issues that operate at different scales, as well as the issues themselves. So social justice and social equity is a, and fair trade are important principles, but they operate at all different scales. And some of there may be tensions between, you know, local level initiatives, national level initiatives, and and international initiatives. This stuff is complicated. You know, it, it, there's a lot of work to be done, even if we get the principles in place and even if the, the 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 political will and intent is there actually delivering these things effectively um in ways that can last you know as you say a lot of these things may be vulnerable we, we can have all, all, all these good intentions and then a few years down the road you know corporate capture and co corporate consolidation has eroded a lot of this stuff we have to put in place solid legislation that can stand the test of time deliver stuff that de deliver outcomes that communities want to see and therefore communities and the politicians that serve them will be supportive of these these initiatives in the longer term. I mean, I genuinely believe it's doable. And I think a lot of the, the examples that are emerging already, whether it's in Uruguay, whether it's in Malta, whether it's in some of the the, 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 the better models that have emerged in US states and, and Canadian provinces, we're doing that already. We're showing how things can be done better because legalization is a process. Regulation is the end point, but there is more than one way to do it. You can do it well, or you can do it badly. And I think advocates such as us who've been pushing for reform all these years, we need to be advocating for, for legalization regulation to be done right. And when it's not done right, I think we have to speak up against it. And I, it, 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 it pains me sometimes to be critical of some of the legalization models that are emerging. But I think it was in, was it in Ohio where they had this awful model with, um, where basically they, they were having a constitutional monopoly for the people who funded the the ballot initiative, where these ten named people would then get basically a monopoly on the on the legal cannabis market, and it was, I, you know, I had to come out against it. But Steve, listen, I did I did want to give you the last word on this, but quite frankly, that was a wonderful <laughs> summation that you just pre uh, presented, and I, I overwhelmingly, of course, in the end, you know, I've I've been on record for a long time as saying I'm not in this for the Budweiserization or Marlboroization of, of of marijuana. I really believe in a small is beautiful model, and I'd like to see that work, and I hope that we can actually make we that can, work in effective ways. That you know, that's no, the next fight. We've won the first. We've won the argument for, uh, against prohibition. Now the, the next battle is to make sure that that, that regulation and legalization regulation is done in the right way. That it, you know, it's a it, no, no, it, it supports right. the goals that, that we all want. To be... It supports the principles that we fought for all along. But on that very optimistic and promising note, I want to bring our extended conversation to a halt. I want to thank you, Steve, for being such a wonderful ally throughout many decades and continuing into the future and a good friend and for being a real thought leader and not just a thought leader, but somebody who's had an impact on the way government shapes these policies and bringing the right set of values to thinking about all of this. And also thank you for being, you know, episode number 80 to conclude season two of psychoactive and hopefully it'll not be the last episode of psychoactive ever um but i'm very glad that you got to be the final guest that we've had um in this current incarnation of psychoactive well, thank you ethan it's been it's it's been a privilege to work with you over all these years and it's been a it's been fun coming on the show and i hope it isn't the last one i hope so too okay steve thanks so much my pleasure if you're enjoying psychoactive please tell your friends about it 
Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Adelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.